1: If you're hoping for an explosion of colour in your garden next spring, now's the time to get some flower bulbs in the ground. So in today's Gardening with the RHS, we'll take you through what to plant as autumn arrives. We're also solving a mystery about a botanical cartoon, and we're hearing how a very popular grower was inspired to become a gardener after a trip to their local library.
2: I discovered Sarah's book, The Bold and Brilliant Garden, at the library. And I just remember finding this book and... um, It marrying my fantasy kind of Alice in Wonderland, exotic birds and um, foliage and lushness and like a decoupage of all colours and tones and shapes. And I just remember thinking, actually, this is the point of being on Earth. It was like feeling like I'd found Eden.
1: Arthur Parkinson would go on to work with the author of that book, Sarah Raven. And we hear from both of them later in the show. I'm Verity Bradbury, the trials team leader here at RHS Garden Wisley, and we're currently standing in the trials garden. If you can hear some slight sort of dripping and dropping, the reason is it is very grey and drizzly here at Wisley today, so we are taking shelter under the only oak tree in the trials garden, and the canopy is just starting to give way to the rain, but... I have to say that will not dampen our spirits because looking out across the trials garden you can see a bed full of yellow and sort of orangey red rebeckias. You can see some crocosmia which are in one of the annual flower mixes and you've also got some lovely exotic looking annuals which are in the distance which include some uh, ricinus there so it's all looking stunning. Soon, we will be doing lots of preparation in this area of beds that are currently housing annual displays. We will be looking to remove the annual displays and plant some new trials, including narcissus, tulips and fritillarias, which will all start to flower next spring and will be assessed to see how they get on. Autumn's a great time to plant and we will be doing that very shortly.
3: The ground's still warm, it's got some moisture and then they'll come up and you'll have some really bright spring colour in your garden.
1: Nikki Barker is one of our advisors. I'll let her take it from here.
3: Spring flowering bulbs are something that we're all quite familiar with but there's quite a range of them. So we're all familiar with Narcissus, the daffodils and tulips but there's lots of other spring bulbs. There's Snowdrops, Crocus, Chinodoxa, Muscari, scilla irises quite a wide range of irises that flower very early in the spring or even late winter actually and lots of them are great for growing in containers as well as growing in the ground in the garden. As a general rule of thumb with bulbs plant them about three times the depth of the size of the bulb so if the bulb's five centimetres, then plant it 12 to 15 centimetres deep. So obviously the smaller the bulb, the shallower that you're planting them. Planting bulbs too shallowly is one of the major causes of them not flowering very well. So they need to be planted good and deep in well-prepared ground and you'll get the best flowering out of them. Planting them too shallow, you very often get no flower. Bulbs will grow in, in most soils. What they don't like is wet soils. So areas that get, tend to get waterlogged over winter, so very heavy clay soils, often the bulbs can rot off in that situation because they're just sat in water. So if you want bulbs in your garden, but your garden lays very wet over winter, consider actually just planting them in containers instead. There's nothing to worry about if your bulbs start to come up early. Very often what happens is we'll get a slightly warmer spell in early spring or late winter. They'll start to come up and then it turns cold, but they just stop. They'll just hold themselves until it's a suitable time for them to start flowering. There's nothing to worry about. The key to getting them to come back the following year is to let the foliage die down naturally. This usually takes sort of a few weeks, but if you cut the foliage too early then it means they're not drawing the resources back into the bulb to enable them to flower the following year. And it's also crucial, especially in containers, that as that foliage is dying down, that you're still watering and feeding them because that's providing the resources as well. People often let the bulbs dry out after they've flowered and then they don't flower again the following year. You've still got to be feeding and watering them. After the flowers have finished, you can nip the flowers off, deadhead the flower, but keep feeding the foliage until it's died down. What you can do in containers, though you can do it in the ground as well to a certain extent, is you can make a sort of bulb lasagna. You can put different timing bulbs coming up at different times in, in layers in a container. So you might put... Crocus in your top layer because they're going to flower early and maybe some Narcissus underneath that are going to come up a bit later and you can layer your bulbs like that. It can be quite tricky because you do have to get the timing right for each species or type of bulb that you put in but it can be very effective as well. It's quite nice to try and get uh, different colours so you might want to mix something like orange tulips with muscari which are blue so you they'll be flowering at the same time but you've got that contrast of color but also the contrast of height so the muscari flower in that lasagna is going to cover up the foliage of the tulips a bit because sometimes the foliage on tulips is quite large and not necessarily so nice to look at personally I love narcissus and daffodils have come in such a wide range you can have so many different sizes heights at uh, times of year that they flower dwarf narcissi are, are just beautiful they're fabulous in containers but they're really good in borders as well just at the front of the border just popping up and then usually quite early february gold is a, is a really lovely dwarf narcissus that is well worth having it, it flowers really reliably the other Thing to think about is with tulips, try species tulips rather than some of the cultivars because species tulips do naturalize to a certain extent, which often border tulips don't. So they can be very reliable, they'll come up year after year. Border tulips. It's often hard to get them to flower again the following year. You'd need to lift them, store them. It can be quite a lot of hard work. So, I would definitely, if you like tulips, recommend going for some of the species tulips. So, Tulip sylvestris is a beautiful one, for example.
1: Thanks, Nikki. Now, someone who also knows a thing or two about creating incredible displays is florist Arthur Parkinson.
2: I'm also a gardener, I'm a henkeeper, and I take photos of my garden and my chickens.
1: With over 73,000 followers on social media and two books under his belt, it's safe to say that Arthur's work has definitely caught the attention of the gardening world. But perhaps this wouldn't have been the case if he hadn't come across a book by Sussex-based gardener Sarah Raven.
2: I come from an ex-mining town called Hooknall on the Nottinghamshire outskirts and my childhood was very much both sets of grandparents around the corner and both of them gardened. My mum gardened a little bit and she was always interested in colour. She was a graphic designer so I was always brought up with art books and she always grew wallflowers and wore very beautiful Venetian toned clothes and things like that. And my dad was interested in furniture so he'd take us at the weekend to lots of National Trust properties where me and my brother would literally fight on the mahogany floorboards until we were chucked out in disgust into the gardens to play around. So I was lucky I was taken to see lots of beautiful gardens through the country but I didn't really get into gardening probably until my early teens which is when we moved house and I started gardening in containers because all we had was a brickyard and it was around that kind of time that I discovered Sarah's book The Bolden and Brilliant Garden at the library was lucky the library was literally across from where we lived across the market in the middle of the town and i just remember finding this book and um it marrying my fancy kind of alice in wonderland exotic birds and um foliage and lushness and like a decoupage of all colors and tones and shapes and i just remember thinking actually this is the point of being on earth it was like feeling like i'd found eden And so I left school. I didn't really know what to do precisely. I'd got just enough GCSEs to scrape into RHS Level 2, I think it was. And I did that at the local agricultural college in Southwell. And then I started going to London, applied for a host of jobs, one being London Zoo, which I didn't get, but I did get one at Kew Gardens as a trainee. Learned a lot, but didn't really find it was nurturing creativity so much so I had the Baldwin Garden Book in my locker all through that year. And I used to get it out almost on a daily basis just to keep myself there to try and remember why I wanted to be a gardener. And then I started going to open days from London to Sussex. I used to get the train.
4: I remember Arthur arriving at one of the open days and I was actually with Adam in the garden. We spotted this handsome young man, (laughs) I think on the veg slope, And I said to Adam, gosh, he doesn't look like one of our normal customers, because most of our customers who visited the garden were female, not all, but also substantially older than Arthur, who then was 18, I think, possibly 19. So we went up and said, hello, you know, why have you come to look around the garden? And he explained he was Arthur, who had actually written to me a couple of times previously, saying that he'd loved the Bold and Brilliant book. And we just got on really well. So I said, well, wait until after the open day and then I can drive you to the station because he admitted that he'd walked all the way from Stonegate Station, which is sort of, what, three, four miles or something. So it was just so touching that he'd gone to the trouble to come out of London, walk all the way here because he, he can't drive. He still can't drive. He's saving the planet. <laughs> He's saving the planet, yeah. <laughs> um. So we got on really well and we kept in touch. And then very soon after that, He was really desperate to get out of London and we were going away and our dog sitter had let us down. So I suggested to him that he came and stayed here for two or three weeks looking after our dogs. And we've been firm friends ever since and are tied together by friendship, but also by a love of the same sort of gardening. We are currently sitting together by a not-lit log fire, although it's pretty freezing today, so we could easily be lighting it. And uh, we're in East Sussex, in the Sussex Weald, looking out over a very heavily wooded countryside. And we're at the highest point in the Sussex Weald, so we've got beautiful views sort of rolling out over the woods in almost all directions and around... Arthur always calls it a necklace around the house... We have a garden that I've laid out here over the last 26 years.
1: We're going to come back to Sarah's garden later in the show as she and Arthur will be telling us what they've been growing to eat. Learning about plants and nature makes a lot of us very happy. And this, of course, isn't a new thing. The RHS recently discovered a book from the early 1800s, unlike any other we'd seen before. It contained unique cartoons that had been stuck in, and the drawings seemed to give clues about its plant-loving owner. So we just had to find out who the mystery botanist was. Our librarian, Fiona Davison, has the story.
5: So as part of getting ready for the new library at Hilltop Centre at Wisley, we've been going through at least 50,000 different books that have been scattered across different collections in the RHS to bring together a great collection for the new library. And during the course of this, we found four volumes of a book set called The English Flora by Sir James Edward Smith. And that was written between 1824 and 1836. Now, it's not a particularly rare set of volumes. They're important books, a very early account of English wildflowers. So we're checking this set that we found in the attic at the old laboratory at Wisley. And on opening the first volume, we found really unusual little cartoon, little hand-coloured lithograph of a woman And that woman was made up of flower parts. Different bits of her body were made up of petals of tulips, rose, lily of the valley. Really pretty little cartoon. That shouldn't have been in the book. It wasn't part of the book. Someone's pasted it in. So a bit intrigued. And we looked into the book a bit more and all we had to go on as to who had pasted this cartoon into the book was... A little inscription on the front page which says Isabella and Allen a gift from my kind friend Mrs Green 1828. That was it really as clues to go on. Isabella Allen isn't a particularly rare name there were plenty of Isabella Allens of the right dates so we decided to put out an appeal and we got an amazing response. We got lots of family history, plant history enthusiasts who started doing a lot of research for us and coming back with suggestions. One Isabella Allen came back more than others, and it was an Isabella Allen, born in 1810, who lived in a village called Madrasfield in Worcestershire, And what people were saying was they found references to her in old newspaper reports exhibiting flowers at the Malvern Flower Show, the Malvern Floral Society show, as it was called then. So she was obviously interested in plants. She was a well-to-do spinster, would have had time to be interested in wildflowers and botany. And so she looked like a good candidate. So we went back to the books and had a good look. And sure enough, a lot of the plants that were listed in the books were little pencil notes next to it saying where Miss Allen had seen the plants. And a lot were saying Malvern and Worcestershire. Everything fell into place and clicked into place when we found one reference to a greater periwinkle found at the Rid, And Miss Allen, who lived in Madrasfield, the name of her house was the Rid. And also we found out that the plants that she'd found and annotated as being in Somerset were at Bishop's Hull and she had an aunt, also called Isabella, who lived at Bishop's Hull. So it was all clicking into place. I think, you know, we were really confident we'd found our woman and, you know, we're really grateful to everybody who wrote into us with all of those details. The 1820s, when Isabella Allen was given this book, when she was only 18, it's a really interesting time for women and botany because... Botany was one of the few serious scientific fields of study that was open to women, respectable ladies. It was an area of study you could do close to home. Flowers were always associated with women and the garden was a space that even in the most kind of restricted view of what women were able to do was a space they were kind of able to be in unchaperoned. So botany was a a field of study that educated middle class women Kind of made their own. And it was also helped by the fact that at that time, the Linnaean plant classification system was widely popular, it was a simple system to understand, and it was accessible to women who were cut off from a a university education, but they could still do it at a high level if they were equipped with books like the English Flora. So, Isabel Allen will have been one of a group of women who were taking botany seriously and studying the wild plants around them seriously and collecting really useful data, and it's it's just a really interesting little moment in time when women had that, certain women, women of a certain wealth and standing, had that freedom to study. It was kind of sadly short-lived as botany, like all the sciences, became more professionalised and it became almost essential that you had a university education to be published and taken seriously. That, at the time, in the middle of the 19th century, was utterly out of the question for women. And so the kind of horticultural and botanical establishments started to look down their noses at these women amateur botanists, and they don't often get the credit that they deserve. I think it's really important that we, particularly for people who are have been overlooked and forgotten by history, aren't part of the kind of normal picture of, you know, great achievers, that we remember them and note them because their lives did... Little by little, their lives and their works did advance science and did advance our understanding of plants and the world around us. And just because they didn't have the kind of status in their day and didn't have the backing of big institutions and letters after their names doesn't mean that the work that they did wasn't interesting and valuable. And I think uncovering these hidden stories is always fascinating to everybody.
1: If you'd like to see Isabella Allen's wonderful book, be sure to check out the link in our show notes. Now, back to East Sussex with Arthur Parkinson and Sarah Raven. As well as being known for her mail order company, Sarah has an impressive vegetable plot. But while she likes to cook up delicious meals with her produce, Arthur has a different reason to love his homegrown veg.
2: I'm growing lots of kale for winter foliage, so they're quite substantial uh, nice young plants, which will all go on top of um, the pots of tulips that I'll plant. Because I love looking out the window on a frosty January day and seeing lots of leaf, rather than just having blank, uh, like bullet mark pots with nothing in them. You're, you know, if you just do bulbs, you're waiting for the eruption in February, aren't you, of all the little beaks. So I use vegetables in a different way to say It's quite often purely visual or still life not much does make it to the chopping board and if it did it'd be ruined anyway because I can't cook Um, (laughs) so um, yeah they're looking good and I've also got young cardoon plants because the same thing I love the foliage so I get them at that time of year they're potted up and growing nicely so they can just be put on top of the bulb lasagnas that I do when they're planted up in November so it's like having a a storage facility of plants that I know are going to become the new sort of winter set for the pots once the summer display goes over and the bulbs go in during the the late autumn.
4: I'm going to be picking for food probably a couple of things mainly at the moment and one of them is dahlias which I think people don't realise they're not only one of the most wonderful various fabulous, fantastical cup flowers, but they're also an edible flower. So we currently have tons and tons of salad here, which was sown about four or five weeks ago. We're just picking stuff that thrives in the autumn and winter, like mitsuna, all the mustards, salad rocket, and hardy lettuces that will go on through autumn into winter, like black-seeded Simpson is one of my favourites. But those are scattered over with herbs... And the hardy herbs that I've started picking will go on picking through the winter are coriander, chervil, and flat-leaf parsley. But over those will then go dahlia petals. So a really nice mix of colours of dahlia petals, just like nasturtiums in a way, but more various in colour, of course. And the second thing that I'm picking tons of at the moment and absolutely loving are tomatoes. And so we have been lucky, unlike lots of people who've had their tomatoes, even inside, wiped out by blight this year because the humidity levels from all the grey skies and rainy days we've had in this non-existent summer has meant that blight has just run riot through the garden And quite a few friends of mine have lost, as I say, their tomatoes, even in their greenhouses. We've lucky we haven't, and they're fine. We lost them all outside in the middle of August, but the ones inside, we defoliated most of them, and they're still going strong. And so we grow 22 different varieties of tomato, and the reason for that is they not only look really beautiful on a plate, but also they have different levels of sweetness and acidity, and so you get a much more interesting tomato salad, tomato sauce or whatever you're going to do with them or a soup if you have these varying levels of sweetness and acidity.
2: If you're worried about having not much interest in terms of foliage or lushness over the winter months, I'd say, you know, you need to be planning ahead really. Obviously, if you're not starting to bank up your biennial plug plants, it's too late to sow them, you need to be looking for them as as young plants now. So it is a case of going through all the catalogues and making sure you are aware of when you need all these things for next year. It's no good waiting until next spring. You're not going to be able to get the wallflowers or the sweet Williams or the kale because they all need to be bought now and potted up. You know, things like violas, there'll be small plugs now, but if you get them and get them all potted up, there'll be substantial plants for for next spring and they'll flower their socks.
4: Yeah, so if I was a beginner gardener, I would definitely in the edible front be thinking of sowing lots of different salad leaves and salad herbs to keep me in delicious homegrown food, even if it's just in a window box through from now until next spring. And as I mentioned earlier, things like any of the mitsunas, pretty much any of the mustards, my favourite currently is one called Red Frills, which is frilly and lovely and tastes like a new potato oddly and interestingly any of the rockets but particularly salad rocket I like a variety called serrata um, so on the edibles that but also I would definitely add some chard some swiss chard as Arthur says kale and finally absolutely crucial perfect for sowing from the middle of September onwards are the spinaches and the hardy varieties like madania or I love the red stem one called rubino. So any of those would be fabulous for sowing now. And on the ornamentals, I would still be doing a bit of autumn sowing of things like nigellas, amimagus would be another thing, uh, salvia viridis blue, the annual scabiouses, and of course, beginning to start to think about planting tulips
1: Sarah Raven and Arthur Parkinson speaking to us from East Sussex. That's it for today. I hope you're feeling inspired to get growing. And remember, now is a great time to plant. So head to your garden, identify any gaps, look up a couple of suitable plants for that location and head to the garden centre. And whilst you're there, remember to grab some bulbs as well. For more on anything in today's episode, head to rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast podcast or check out our show notes. It's goodbye from me, Verity Bradbury. Happy gardening to you all. And even though it's raining, we still got to be out here. The dahlias, although beautiful, need constant deadheading at this time of year, so it's keeping us very busy.
0: I'm walking down the path in my garden, and have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawn mower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawn mower, the lawn is actually looking better.